God, I give up. If you don't do something, I'm done. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Today on the podcast, part two of my abortion story. I'm in college at Penn State now. It's my junior year, and I have to get an internship for my major, which is human development and family studies. I want to be a counselor, so I need to find a counseling office to intern at. There is a small counseling office I often drive by that is only one block from my apartment, so I decide to go there. The door sticks, so I pull harder and stumble back. The door opens and I walk through. I tell the woman at the front desk I'd like to become an intern, and I ask for an application. As I leave the building, application in hand, I begin scanning the questions, and I pause on one. What do you know about abortion? That's a weird question. I thought, nothing. I decide I need to get a book on abortion so I can answer the question well. I drive to Barnes & Noble and surprisingly find a book on abortion called Forbidden Grief, The Unspoken Pain of Abortion. I buy it and take myself to a coffee shop to read it, paper and pen in hand, ready to learn. Now's a good time to go back a few years and give you some more information about my life around this time. The biggest thing is that I've become a Christian. The quick story is this. God wooed me. The wooing began as a little girl when my sister was kidnapped by her dad after my mom dropped her off for his custody weekend. My sister and I have different dads. He never came back. I prayed every night to a God I didn't know to find my sister. And several months later, with the help of a private investigator, my mom found her. It was then that it was cemented in my heart that there was a God. Later, after moving in with my mom, an uncle came to visit and gave me a cassette tape of a Christian singer. I didn't even know that Christian singers or Christian music even existed. I knew about hymns from going to the Catholic church with my stepmom, but that's all I knew. And for whatever reason, I took out my boys to men tape and put in this Christian singer tape. I remember sitting on my bunk bed, listening to the words and crying out, that I wanted whatever it was the man was singing about. I didn't understand it all, but I wanted it. I asked God to give me whatever it was that that man had. Shortly after that, my uncle took us to a church where people were laughing and clapping and singing, and I had never seen anything like it in my life. It felt alive. The wooing continued. In high school, back in Pennsylvania, I started going to Young Life, a ministry for public school kids that was held on Wednesday nights. It's where all the popular kids went to get out of the house, so I went too. It was there that I began to learn about Jesus, God's Son, who died for my sins. I didn't get it, but I wanted to keep listening and learning. I got a New Testament and began to read it. And 
I could actually understand it. I remember as a little girl trying to pick up this Bible that I had by my bed, and I would like open it to the first page in Genesis or whatever, and I just remember thinking, I don't even get this, and I would close it up and put it back down. But this, this New Testament, and for whatever reason now, I couldn't get enough of it. I could understand it. I filled notebook pages with scriptures that spoke to me. I wanted to know and follow this Jesus, this God. I committed to it. I began calling myself a Christian. I was 18. In college, I got involved with another student ministry, this one called The Navigators. It was through the NAVs, as we called it, that I continued to learn and grow in my faith. But there was a particular night that changed everything for me. I went to a weekend NAV retreat, and there was a speaker there who asked us all this question. What would you do if Jesus walked in the room right now? Well, that's a no-brainer, I thought. I'd hide. In fact, if Jesus walked in right now, I would crawl over to that couch and hide behind it because Jesus wouldn't want to see me. To see me is to see inside me, and what is inside of me is filthy. I feel it. I feel it by the guilt and the dirt and the tight stomach and the easy girl past and the emptied womb. I feel it in my weakness and in how pitiful I am, how dumb I am. I hold a sparse amount of dignity, and even that I would give away to not be alone. No, Jesus would not want to see me, and quite frankly, I couldn't bear to see him. I would feel it too much, the unworthiness attached to the ache to be loved. After the talk, I joined a discussion group, and everyone seems to be cool with meeting Jesus in person. I'm asked what I would do, and I told them. I would hide. I wish I could tell you what I'm hearing right now from the group members, but I can't. It's fuzzy. But what sticks, what takes root in my soul, is this. I don't have to hide. Jesus knows everything about me and everything I've done and everything I'm going to do. And he loves me. This knowledge was a game changer for me. From that day forward, I was a complete Jesus girl, like the super obnoxious kind that tells everybody about Jesus, even when people are like, back the heck off. I just didn't know any better. I was so, so excited. And I just continued to learn, continued to read, continued to study. I wanted to know everything about God. I wanted to know everything about the truth. And I just couldn't get enough. The thing is, even though it's true that Jesus came into my life and filled me with so much love and so much hope, wound habits are hard to break. Wound habits are the ones where we do what we don't want to do because it's the only way we know how to deal with the pain of our wounds. For me, my addiction, my way of dealing with my pain and my wounds was to wrap my body in another's. I needed to know I was loved and not alone by another human, and it was a human body tangled up with mine that gave me the fleeting security of being wanted. By my junior year of college, There was a darkness around me that felt heavier than the light. I still love the Lord. I loved Him. But I was in a dark place. Here's a poem I wrote during that time. 
tortured soul full of disgrace that can't replace or erase the sin that lies within, a divorce it is that reeks with pain and guilt and shame that hides behind the game. You used to hug me so tight, it's as if you thought you could squeeze the hurt and destruction out. Now all you want to do is shout. I feel as though my caked-on face is getting harder to remove, so sad and tired and limp. I'm afraid it's becoming my own, my body on loan. Now I live with the consequences of my selfish actions, taking in, deserving your reactions. Sorries are pathetic, and explanations are a slap in the face. So I sit with my tortured soul, full of disgrace. My caked-on face, my body on loan, enough alcohol to numb my senses, disgraced. That's how I felt. My bones were barely holding up my flesh. On my knees, face to the ground, I prayed, God, I give up. If you don't do something, I'm done. It was that week after that prayer that I walked into the counseling office to get an application for an internship. And it was that office that was not just a counseling office, but a crisis pregnancy clinic, something I'd never heard of. And so here we are, back at the coffee shop, with the book. An hour into reading it, I'm picking through wet tissues, trying to find a dry one to handle the rest of this mess coming out of me. I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. Other women who have had abortions have been in the pit, just like I have, trying to find their way without facing the thing, the hidden pain. I learn that when we don't touch the pain, acknowledge it, see it, and listen to it, it manifests in other ways, often destructive ways. Escape in forms of alcohol, drugs, sex, depression, suicidal thoughts, post-traumatic stress. That's what I read. I read about the trauma and the destruction and the ache. I know what I need to do. I'm standing once again in front of the door that sticks, pushing my feet forward. One step, two, I walk into the lobby. You can do this. A woman sees me, and I try to look into her eyes, but the little girl in me is making an appearance, and I'm afraid, and I'm shy. I'm small, but I know I'm supposed to be here. I know that God in His kindness has led me here to heal my broken heart and bind up some wounded places. I came here for a job, I say to her, but I think God wants me to deal with my abortion. God heard my cry, and He lifted me out of the pit. I spent six weeks going through post-abortion counseling with a kind, compassionate, and gentle woman named Anne, who walked with me through the hard process of facing and dealing with the honest, raw emotions of having an abortion. I'm not going to lie to you. It sucked. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. At one point, I remember throwing the book we were going through across the room in anger and shouting about how stupid it was and how I hated it. Facing the deep wounds and staying with them is a fight, but it's one of the most worthwhile fights I've ever given myself to. After working through all the stages of grief, after surrendering and forgiving and seeing the truth and feeling it all, the chains started to come undone. I would no longer be bound by hiding, embarrassment, and shame. At the end of my post-abortion counseling, I told my counselor that I really wanted to know the sex of my baby so I could name them. 
the Lord gave me a dream. In my dream, a blonde-haired, bright blue-eyed boy about seven or eight years old was hugging me and telling me it was okay. I kept telling him I was sorry. I'm so sorry. But he just kept saying it was okay and he'd see me again one day. His name was David. Today, I'm free. I can tell the truth and I can walk free. I have nothing to hide and I've gained the power of being free before God and others, and that is a gift worth facing the pain for. I want to tell you one last thing before I end today's podcast. Yesterday, as I was preparing for these episodes, I went looking for a picture of myself at 16. I went into my attic, and I found the picture I was looking for in an old box, but that's not all I found. When my firstborn, Ella, who is now 13, was a baby, I made her a baby box full of memories for her to have one day. I pulled the box out of the attic and put it in her room for her to see after school. When she came home, I sat with her on her bed and we looked through it together. One of the things in the box was the pregnancy test I took when I found out I was pregnant with her. On the back of the test was the date I took it, January 17th. I caught my breath, January 17th. That was the due date of my first baby. My David. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the Complicated Heart Podcast. See you next time.